You are listening to Invisible Not Broken, a podcast where we talk about life with chronic illness and everything that goes with it. We interview inspirational leaders and compassionate practitioners. I'm Eva Minkoff, your co-host, fibromyalgia warrior, and founder of Wellacopia. Wellacopia is humanizing healthcare by matching chronic illness warriors with their ideal practitioners, the ones who will be the ringleaders in their care. Today, I'm super excited to reintroduce Dr. Boyana Yankovic Weatherly, who was previously on Invisible Not Broken. If you want to check that one out, the episode is titled Hope, Being Present, and Baby Steps Towards Healing, and it was published in July of this past year, 2019. As a quick recap, Dr. Boyana is an award-winning physician, double board certified in internal and integrative medicine, who transitioned from standard care to her own integrative practice. Today, she's back on the show, taking a deeper dive into mindfulness and its profound ability to influence our lives with or without chronic illness. And in this episode, we talk about the definitions of mindfulness including the four types of meditation practices and how to adapt to them to your mind and body needs, as well as how to build your own resilience routine and coping skills. So chock full of advice today and the power of your mind to take charge of your body, breathing techniques, and more. Before we get started, A reminder that all conversations, observations, and health claims on this podcast are based on individual experiences and expertise. Everyone has their own personal and professional truths and should be treated as such. Also, please support Invisible Not Broken with Patreon. We are a self-funded podcast and we could really use your help to keep Invisible Not Broken going and hopefully expanding. Even $5 a month means so much to us. To show us some love, visit www.patreon.com slash invisible not broken. And I'll put that link in the show notes and on our website as well. All right, let's get started. Hi, Dr. Bayana. Hi. <laughs> joining us again on Invisible Not Broken. I'm really excited to have you back here because clearly we needed to continue the conversation. Yes, it's great to be here again. So I know today we want to talk about putting mindfulness theory into practice. Very useful uh, tool to take on today. And uh, more specifically, how to activate your resilience mindset and use it success. success. <laughs> use it successfully to cope with your conditions. Uh, So I thought we would start with how you generally define mindfulness and go from there. Absolutely. Uh, So I'm actually going to share the definition of mindfulness that um, comes from John Kabat-Zinn, who is the founder of mindfulness-based stress reduction. And uh, I'll share with you a little bit more about his history as well as the history of mindfulness-based stress reduction research. Um, But first, let's get to the definition, because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about meditation and mindfulness. 
Uh, and mindfulness meditation is one type of a meditation practice that one can adopt uh, that has shown to have tremendous benefits for anxiety, depression, stress, insomnia, chronic pain, irritable bowel syndrome, and the list goes on. Mindfulness is awareness. It is cultivated by paying attention in a very particular and sustained way, and also paying attention on purpose, in this moment and without judgment. Now, it's very difficult to pay attention without judgment because being human, we are programmed to judge. And there have been studies on this, but we don't really need any um, studies necessarily to tell us that from the moment that we see somebody start talking to them, um, or when we're even assessing a situation in our environment, we are judging because this is part of our protective mechanism. We're judging whether a situation is safe. We're judging whether the person that we're talking to is kind, trustworthy, uh, whether they're entertaining or boring, whether they're angry, um, upset, or whether they're calm. Uh, and so it's normal to have judgments, and it's highly beneficial to have judgments. But what we really mean by paying attention non-judgmentally is to be able to take a step back from that innate, from that natural judgment, and be able to observe it and say, I'm judging. I realize that. That is okay. It's serving a purpose. But let me get curious about that judgment. Let me get curious about why I'm judging, what I'm judging, and what kind of information I'm getting from this. So that's where the judgment component comes in. And then, of course, when it comes to paying attention, well, in today's world, we know that it's so hard to pay attention because we're constantly multitasking. And when we're multitasking, our attention goes from our phone to our My computer. I couldn't hear what oh, you I said. think... Siri was spying on me, actually, and my Siri on my phone just said, I apologize. I couldn't hear what you said. Um, so <laughs> there goes my attention. Uh, but when we're paying attention to our computer, our phone, um, we're having a conversation at the same time, maybe the TV is on, uh, maybe we have multiple screens open on our computer and are going back between our email and maybe something that was on our to-do at work, we're constantly doing multiple things at the same time. Well, number one, we know that this is actually uh, negative for our efficiency. Uh, we're actually about a quarter um, uh, more, or I should say four times less efficient when we're multitasking than when we're actually single tasking. Uh, so that attention to one thing at the present moment is very, very important. But not only are we more efficient, we're also more in touch with what's going on in here and in here, what's going on inside. Uh, we're more in touch with the information that we're processing and we're able to process it in a, in a deeper way. And we're also able to connect to people better. I mean, just think about it. Let's say um, you're having a conversation with a friend and let's say you're both on your phones. You're also kind of like trying to like answer some texts there, like getting your notifications or whatnot. And you're trying to have a conversation at the same time with another person. Well, it's not going to be an engaging, uh, very deep, meaningful conversation. But if you're making eye contact, if you're only paying attention to each other, and if there aren't these other distractions, these other stimuli around, you're actually having a meaningful conversation. And if at that same time, 
you're also cultivating that non-judgment and you're in this present moment fully, well, then you're having a mindful conversation. So that could be one example of that. And just to share with you another kind of interesting fact about this judgment, because I really was um, astounded by this when I, when I first read it. So uh, there is a study where they, by these uh, Princeton psychologists, where they exposed people uh, to photos of different individuals. And it was determined that within a fraction of a second, within about 100 milliseconds, uh, these subjects form judgments about these people on the photographs. So clearly, this is something that we're doing all the time, subconsciously. And again, it's a good protective mechanism. We don't want to resist it or go against it. But we just want to take a step back, observe it, and get curious about it. I like that uh, we went right into judgment when, mm -hmm. when, when first talking about mindfulness, because I don't personally think that that is what most people would go to when they think about mindfulness, but it is exactly that, whether it be um, internal judgment or external judgment, mm -hmm. it's always there. And the first step is to be aware that it exists. Yes. Um, and I know we were also talking about um, and I was uh, bef before this, the first step towards mindfulness, right? Yes, absolutely. And and you know the first uh, kind of this this um, I wanted to emphasize also in terms of paying attention when we're talking about paying attention to what's going on inside for us as well as what's going on outside. Well, in terms of what's going on inside, I mean, how often do you pay attention to your breath, right? Unless you know, you're already meditating or doing yoga and during those activities, you are paying attention to your breath, right? But during your regular day, you're going about, you're grocery shopping, you're um, doing work, you're reading something. Are you really paying attention to your breath? No, because again, this is something that our nervous system does subconsciously because if we really had to pay attention to our breath in order to breathe, we would be long dead. So we do not need to, this is not an essential function to pay attention to our breath. But if you do every once in a while, catch yourself, you know, pay attention and, and start catching yourself, we notice that oftentimes we're actually uh, breathing fast and we're taking shallow breaths. And this is something that plays an important role in the physiology of mindfulness. When we start paying attention and then start shifting our breathing pattern. Uh, what do you think about paying attention when you're in pain. So think about something that where you might not want to be paying attention. Where is it beneficial in, in those moments where it's really difficult for some of us? Um, it could be acute pain. It could be pain that's been going on for hours or days. And this is extremely challenging because the instinct when we're in pain is that we just want to jump out of our bodies. We are not wanting to engage with or uh, pay attention to what's going on in our bodies. And the, the one analogy that I can use for myself personally is when I delivered my two babies, I did so without uh, an epidural. So I know that extreme 100 out of 10 pain that just makes you wanna not just scream really, but I've, I've bitten people <laughs> during labor. I mean, it's it's that excruciating. And so I can, I can relate in that momentary, um, uh, uh, you know, time frame uh, to what excruciating pain might be like. 
when we talk about chronic pain, right, this is this is constant pain, or maybe intermittent chronic pain that comes and goes. Um, and certainly, the instinct then is also to, again, disengage from our bodies to disengage from that to run away from it to reject it. One of the very important elements of mindfulness is acceptance. And that also refers to acceptance to discomfort. This could be emotional discomfort or physical discomfort. What this acceptance leads to is ultimately, as, as we're then doing a deeper dive in mindfulness and starting that mindfulness practice, is this acceptance can lead to improvement in symptoms. But until we reach that stage of acceptance, it's going to be very difficult to to practice and to really derive all the benefits of mindfulness or mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction. What does acceptance look like when you have pain? Because I was thinking, okay, I'm in a state of incredible pain here. I can't think about anything else. Accepting it in, in my pessimistic mindset is like, yeah, I have pain. I get it. I accept that this is happening to me. But mm-hmm. I, the word acceptance to me can go in two different directions. Um, it just at least when I don't think about it extensively, th- those being passive and active acceptance. Passive is like, okay, yeah, I get it. I have this, or this is going on. Mm-hmm. And active maybe being, okay, I, I, I'd like to hear what you say, but mm-hmm. my general thought is, um, all right, this is what's going on. I'm aware of that. And therefore I have a say in how I'm going to react to it. Right. Right. Um, I like I like how you broke it down into into active and passive, and I and I absolutely agree with that. I think that um, taking the element of taking charge of and believing that there's something that you can do for yourself to take charge of that perception is extremely important. Because when we don't feel that we have any kind of weight or power over this, then how can we possibly get on that path to healing? Uh, if we just don't think that, well, no matter what I do, this I'm going to be perceiving this pain in, in just the same way. And then the other important piece to acknowledge is that it's not the acceptance. It's not necessarily an action that takes place and that's it. It's a process. So the process of acceptance and then accepting the process of acceptance is really important. Um, and one very interesting study um, that actually looked at mindfulness and the perception of pain uh, was done in 14 long-term meditators and 14 matched controls. And in this study, uh, they actually exposed uh, the individuals with a, with a thermal stimulus, so with a hot stimulus, um, and they found that experienced meditators reported equal pain intensity to the matched controls, but they reported less unpleasantness from the pain than novices, which I thought was, and again, it's a small study, 14 versus 14, but I thought that was really quite interesting. And I'm happy to share the reference to the study so that, so that your listeners can see. Um, but I, I thought that was to me when I first was, this is a study from 2013. When I first uh, read this study, I was really 
impressed because this was also around the time that I was starting to um, go on my own mindfulness and meditation journey. And as a, an internal medicine physician at the time who hadn't really had any exposure to mindfulness or any other form of meditation, I was very skeptical um, but was just was just so impressed at our body's ability to uh, transform something like a pain stimulus, which we would think, well, uh, the thermal stimulus was objectively administered and the same dose was given, uh, yet these individuals experienced it so differently. And I have a graph as well that I wish I could share, but again, it's something that we can post so that your um, your your uh, listeners can see. That really is fascinating. I'm it I'm at the same time not so surprised personally. And I'm trying to think of an example where I had seen that benefit, but I know that there are times I can tell a difference between the days where I meditate, or really just for me, that could be sitting still and breathing and paying attention mm-hmm. to my body. Yeah. But even then, I just see a difference physically in my day and how I experience the day. So I haven't tried burning myself (laughs) (laughs) please (laughs) yeah don't try this at home but um i would not be surprised if that were the case and um i'd actually like to experiment on that again not burning myself but just certain pain experiences or just just experiences and if and you know and if and if um you know one of the things that you may do is you may keep a journal so you can uh, notice the differences in the journal prior to starting a consistent mindfulness practice and after, and then just noticing the chronic pain as it arises and then how you respond to it when you've been meditating consistently versus when you haven't and seeing what that difference is. And so we're, we're talking about mindfulness, but of course there's different ways to be mindful. I know we, we talked about just awareness as being kind of the gateway right? That's, that's the first level. And then what are the actual um, kinds of practices of mindfulness? Meditation, as we said, of course, um, um, being the the go-to, but what does meditation look like, right? Because there's so many different kinds of meditation. Yes. So maybe we can break down meditation first into uh, different kinds of meditation. And then we can talk a little bit more specifically about mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is a type of meditation practice and then how this um how we can practice it because there's certainly no one way to do it and you know one of the things that i often hear from patients and i definitely was in this boat as well when i first started was that you know during that half an hour or hour that i meditate or do yoga i feel perfectly zen i feel perfectly you know stable and calm and then i go out there into my day-to-day life and i'm so easily triggered by Um, again, it could be work, it could be emails, it could be maybe an argument or um, whether it's something at home or at work. Uh, So what the the idea is of these mindfulness practices is not that you just have this one hour of calm, or I mean, who, who really has an hour in, 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 you know, today to, to meditate, let's say you're doing it for 20 minutes, 30 minutes every day, Well, the goal is not just to have you feel calm and zen for those 20 to 30 minutes. The goal is really to translate this to your day-to-day and to really kind of make this part of the the routine, not just for the purpose of having some, uh, you know, transient relief, 
but to have it carry throughout the rest of the uh, throughout the rest of the day. Uh, and so we can definitely talk about some of the different ways. So as um, as I'm sure you know, uh, the history of mindfulness is that and meditation is that really it kind of started as a spiritual practice, which very much today it's not for the most part. And many religions have practices that are very similar to mindfulness. Uh, and so this is something that is is very much ancient and used to be um, uh, aligned with a spiritual or a religious practice. Um, in terms of mindfulness-based stress reduction, specifically, it originates from the Buddhist tradition and it, it adopts some of the Buddhist uh, beliefs and practices. Um, in terms of um, the different types of uh, meditation itself, uh, so they're the kind of uh, meditations that um, very much incorporate uh, visualizations, different types of rituals, chanting. Um, so that could be one form of meditation. Uh, there are other um, forms that, again, more like the mindfulness-based stress reduction that I was sharing, this kind of choiceless or open awareness, right? So we'll talk a little bit about the body scan, which is a common mindfulness-based stress reduction meditation practice, where we're aware of what's going on, again, physically, emotionally, the thoughts that come up from us for us, and we gain curiosity and we start to kind of ask questions about it rather than judging, rejecting, making it go away. Um, but it's this choiceless awareness. We're going in with no specific agenda, with no chant, with no specific mantra. Uh, there are also the mantra-based meditations, such as um, in the Ayurvedic tradi traditions or the transcend uh, transcendental meditation, where an individual is assigned a specific mantra, and then they, as they're meditating, they're basically repeating this mantra um, uh, in in the quiet, you know, quietly inside their head. Now, the other um, option as well that I oftentimes recommend for my, you know, beginning meditators that feel like it's so hard to quiet my mind. And again, we'll discuss this myth as well. It's really not about quieting your mind, but for individuals that very much feel like I just can't sit in silence, you know, it's going to make me more nervous. I oftentimes recommend guided meditations, and these are there are so many wonderful ones. And again, as I was mentioning to you earlier, I have a lot of these resources that I like and use personally on my website. Um, but again, we can share the links that people can explore because um, it, it, it sometimes is about finding the right fit and something that really resonates with you. So the subject of the um, guided meditation, the voice of the person, the pace, I find that when I'm in that state where I'm ready to meditate, these things really, really matter in terms of how engaged I'm going to stay, how much I'm going to really focus on this and start like letting it really flow. Um, so again, there are a lot of resources available, but just some things to be aware of. There are definitely different entry points into um, the, the meditation world, and there's definitely no single way to do it and also no wrong way to do it. You know, that's another one of my pet peeves, you know, I'll you know, you'll, you'll often be asked, am I, am I doing it the right way? And there are definitely certain, you know, recommendations and, and certain tips that I give, uh, but there's no right or wrong way to do it. Um, and, and more importantly, the, the, the distinction is, is not to really do it, but to be it. Because when we're talking about meditation and mindfulness, and also the way that we really want to, to let this translate into the rest of our lives is we want it to translate in in who we are 
not in what we do, the actions that we take necessarily, but who we are, because that's automatically going to be reflected in the actions that are then consequences of that. So the focus is on being rather than, am I doing this correctly? Oh, exactly. Uh, that's a really great distinction. Um, and I think that's something I really wanted to distinguish in talking about this is not just learning what mindfulness and meditation is, but how it can be applied to your life as an individual. And everything that I talk about and promote is, is personalization, customization, because we're all different. Uh, and while there are tools that are going to be maybe more use, uh, useful for more people uh, than not, we, we all have different environments at the very least. Actually, that's like the thing we probably have the closest to in common. <laughs> um, but uh, so for me, uh, an example would be the app Headspace, which a lot of people know about. I think it might be the most popular. Um, I've used Headspace as well as tried others. I like the guy's voice on Headspace the best. For me, that happened to work really well. They have like a 10-day um, trial where you can listen to the 10-day, I think, intro meditations. Um, and I got really hooked on that. I like to meditate. I always say, again, meditate loosely because I don't actually think I fully, fully meditate, but do my, um, what do you call it? Like body stem awareness mm -hmm. uh, and breathing practices in my leather armchair. Mm -hmm. Some people do it on the floor. Some people do it in more of an upright chair. Some people stand, I've heard. Mm -hmm. uh, people do it in all different ways or lying on in the bed. I like being in my chair. That is the place where I feel like I can let my body really sink in and become very in tune with um my chair i like to not have music on otherwise mm -hmm. love music uh some people love essential oils i actually like in um what's it called diffusing mm -hmm. so, yes yeah like i actually do have one and i don't use it nearly enough but lavender is really calming and um yeah diffusers are basically balm as well as great mm -hmm. balm lemon balm oh good to know yeah i love yeah i love both of those smells but just having that essence in the air is is really good lavender i even use at night actually to calm me but so that's just a little anecdote those are some things that i do that work for me but they might not work for everybody and i love you touched on actually several really really important points uh one of them being that you you know you have your leather chair right and it you probably experimented with different places and you know in your home uh and found that okay this is what works for me um i've even had patients that you know had a busy home and work life where they felt that you know i'm never alone in either one of these places and I had suggested meditating, you know, in the car once they parked the car, of course, not while driving. And that works well for some people, you know, let's say you pull into your um, driveway and uh, you park and just have those, even if it's just five minutes, have the five minute meditation before you enter another type of, you know, busy chaos, you know, chaotic environment. Um, because again, it also helps us, um, go from one mode to another. And a lot of us can be very different in our work mode versus our home mode um, and, and want a little bit of that separation and that clearing. Uh, but I think that recognizing definitely that 
um, different environments may work better for you. And ideally, if you can, though, I would say finding a place in your home that feels safe, that's quiet, that's calm, and finding a time, of course, that's calm, because especially for people that have kids or pets even, you know, there, there are times of the day that, that things are quite hectic. And so you may not have that calm, um, you know, between, um, you know, 8 a.m. and 8 p.m., but you might have that calm either later at night or first thing in the morning if you wake up at 6 a.m. and that's the time that you choose to meditate. So definitely thinking about the time that works for you and thinking about the place that works for you. And ideally, if you have the space, you know, whether it's putting that diffuser there uh, or putting... Uh, you know, a candle that you light or having some kind of a routine associated with it. I found that that works very well for a lot of people where you attach it to a routine that's part of your mindfulness and meditation routine. And oftentimes I love that you mentioned lavender because we associate scents to different emotions and different things that we do. So again, that's a nice coupling there of, of just having something that you associate with doing meditation. And that kind of gets you into that mental zone. Um, of of doing the the act of meditation, um, but I think that also tying it into a routine that you do before or after, that's another very important thing. Because again, um, for you know listeners who are either new to meditation or the ones that have maybe done it before and um, and are currently not doing it and thinking about get back getting back into it, and we've all experienced it. I mean, I certainly have times that I go without meditation and then I get back on it and. But the best way to really stick to a habit is to attach it to another habit that you already do, no question. So whether it's, you know, after I brush my teeth, I'm going to do my body scan. Or just before I go to bed, I'm going to listen to my 21-day meditation by Deepak Chopra and Oprah. Uh, or, um, you know, having it, or sometimes after exercise, actually, that's another time that I like to do it because I feel like that physically I've kind of exhausted myself. And so I don't have that fidgety feeling anymore and that desire for movement and like, oh, I can't sit still. So you may choose, okay, after I do my workout, I'm going to do my 10 minutes or however many minutes of a guided meditation or mantra or body scan, whatever it may be. Um, so tying it to an activity that you already do is key in building up that meditation practice. And then on top of that, tying it with a place, a specific place um, that is conducive to meditating. So again, quiet place, safe space where you feel like, again, if it's somewhere outside of your home, you want to make sure that if it's your office, you can shut the door or put a sign on that you're meditating or busy or please do not disturb. Because again, you don't want to have to be so on alert about what what if somebody walks in? What if something else happens? You want to really allow yourself and your body to enter that quiet, safe zone. Uh, and then, as we mentioned, tying it to um, tying it to a ritual uh, it can also be beneficial. And again, kind of putting that whole experience together for yourself. And then, in terms of um, you know, mentioning the Headspace app, I think that's great, works for a lot of people. There's the Insight Timer app that I also really like. Uh, and then there are also some uh, other free resources online that, again, we'll share the websites um, of different kinds of meditations. So maybe we'll kind of get into the different mindfulness-based stress reduction meditation strategies, um, because this is a question that I get asked a lot, you know, how do I, what do I start? How do I start? And I think sometimes the best way is to just try. And if one thing doesn't work for you, maybe it's, it's, again, it doesn't work for you because of the particular time that you've tried it and you kind of leave it alone and try something else. 
uh, or maybe this is just not compatible with who you are, with your lifestyle, and then, you know, again, move on to something else. But in terms of the mindfulness-based stress reduction, so there's the body scan. And oftentimes this can be this can be helpful for people who have chronic pain, also people that have gone through surgeries or, or even other types of, again, conditions that have affected their body or caused physical pain, whether currently or in the past. Um, it can be um, quite a healing experience is, is really what I've, what I've observed with my patients and other individuals that I've, um, that I've worked with or know that have been doing the consistent mind-body um, uh, the body scan mindfulness practices. And so what this involves in just very simple terms is exactly what it sounds like, body scan. So you're literally going from either head to toe or you could start in your toes and work your way up. And there are guided meditations that actually will, that you can get for free that'll lead you through the body scan. And once you get comfortable, you can do it on your own. Um, the one thing that may happen, and this is with any meditation, um, and this has actually sometimes even happened, you know, sometimes I'll guide um, you know, a group of people through a meditation for maybe five or 10 minutes. If you're really tired and somebody's guiding you through a meditation or, or you're doing it on your own, you may fall asleep. It will happen. And again, it's not that you did something wrong. It's a great thing to note. Wow. Maybe I'm a little sleep deprived. Let me look at my sleep hygiene and what I can do in that department. Um, but, um, but in terms of the body scan itself, um, you know, starting starting at your toes, slowly working your way up. And really what you're doing during those times is, you know, you may kind of you know, wiggle your toes when you're, when you're there um, or depending on what body, uh, uh, your, uh, what uh, part of the body you're at, um, you may notice how it feels. Uh, you may notice, let's say if we're talking about your, um, you know, your feet and, and your toes, you may notice just the sensation of your feet touching the ground or touching your shoes or your socks or whatever else you're wearing. Just how does that feel? What are the sensations that I have right now? And then you slowly work your way up. Um, and that is really the, the um, body scan. Uh, now there's another form as well that one can do. And, uh, and this is, this is my favorite. And this is especially great when um, uh, you're in need of comfort uh, whether it's because of a particularly stressful situation or feeling alone or feeling that you've been um, back to judgment, too judgmental to your, towards yourself, maybe for some reason, is the loving kindness meditation. I love the loving kindness meditation. Uh, and again, this is something that you can, I'll provide the resource so that uh, listeners can, can go on, but there are some wonderful free resources for this. And it's a guided meditation uh, that really um, helps one center. Um, it's it's kind of a heart centered meditation. It really centers around the heart, and and it helps us kind of really provide that loving kindness because we all need loving kindness. But especially at times of stress, um, is when we need it the most. And it's not. And that's the time where we don't want to seek a big challenge, but where we really just kind of want to um, to stay in our comfort zone. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, actually, because I think that's an important point to touch upon just in the whole kind of mindfulness um, and exploring the different modalities as well. Uh, and then there's the walking meditation. So for um, individuals who feel that, you know, there's no way that I can start with this, I am just, um, you know, I really need movement. 
So one recommendation that I make is what I said earlier, start with do an exercise, you know, do whatever, whatever you typically do for exercise. Um, and then attach the meditation right after that, because physically you would have, um, you would be then more comfortable, more likely to be comfortable lying still or sitting still. Uh, but the other option is to just to choose to do uh, walking meditation. Um, ideally, I would recommend doing this in an environment where we're not too, too distracted um, and not on a busy street, ideally, although really technically you could do it anywhere. Uh, and ideally also not where there's traffic because you really kind of, again, want to be focused on what's going on inside. And also you want to be focused on the sensations and not really looking out again, activating our sympathetic nervous system here and watch, you know, watching out for cars and are we going to bump into someone or is somebody going to bump into us? But really, again, focusing within. So whether this is something that one can do in their apartment or in their backyard, if they have a house, um, you know, again, another great practice. And this really involves just taking very slow steps with purpose. Uh, and again, there are example of the, examples of this that, that, uh, that I'm sure people can find online, um, where again, it's just very, very slow steps on purpose and noticing literally how each part of your foot touches the floor, how each part of your body starts to move in kind of in sync and in sequence. Um, and that would be the walking meditation. And um, the other form of mindfulness that oftentimes um, is helpful uh, for people, and especially, again, going back to our busy lifestyles, and as well as people who are suffering from any gut issues, is mindful eating. Uh, so there is a raisin exercise that I did a while back, and I recorded a video on it. It's um, it's on my website as well, but it's a very well-known uh, raisin exercise that's part of the mindfulness-based stress reduction curriculum. And it's funny, when I first did it, I actually don't like raisins. And so I was thinking already, oh, I got to do this exercise with a raisin. I don't like the taste of raisins. I don't want to do it. And I listened to, I don't know if it was, again, um, uh, content by John Kabat-Zinn, again, the founder of Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, or maybe it was one of my instructors, but they specifically, and I don't know if it was written or, 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 or something on audio, but they specifically, you know, spoke to people like me who were like, well, even if you don't like raisins, and even if you don't, you know, buy into this kind of thing, like, we urge you to try it. It's a really helpful exercise. So what we did, and it must have taken us at least 10 minutes to complete this exercise. Now it's just one reason. You're eating one reason for 10 minutes. But what it is, is, is before you even put the raisin close to your mouth, you're observing it. You're looking at the color. You're looking at the creases in the raisin. You're feeling the texture with your fingers. You're really observing the shape. And then slowly you put it to your nose, you smell it. Oh, what does it smell like? Okay. You might even put it to your ear and, and you know, observe what it sounds like when you're rubbing, you know, your, your fingers with the raisin. Then you finally put it to your mouth. What does it feel like on my lips? And then finally, what does it feel like in my mouth? And then you really feel probably more intensely than ever because the exercise takes so long and you're really just paying attention to this one reason and nothing else. The amount of saliva and you know the you you just feel that salivary response of like when am I going to eat this reason? 
And I will say again, never having never been a fan of raisins, the the level of flavor and the juice and the sweetness that came out of that particular raisin was just off the charts. But again, it really tells you how mindfulness can completely change your perception of something that seems objective. You know, whether we're talking about that pain stimulus or whether we're talking about this little raisin that again, it's, it's a raisin to you, it's a raisin to me, it's a raisin to everybody else out there. But the perception of eating that raisin, again, in a state of, of mindfulness while we're cultivating and practicing mindfulness versus when, you know, I'm on my email and kind of, you know, doing my work and then just kind of shoving some food in my mouth is completely different. I mean, it's, and so the reason that I mentioned mindful eating, there are two actually. So one is because I see a lot of patients with um, irritable bowel syndrome and um, with other gut issues and mindful eating is very important, slow, meaningful eating, allowing our time, ourselves time to chew, right? Where the digestive process starts is extremely important. And again, I cannot over, I cannot emphasize enough how the pace of today's life and the amount of multitasking and the kind of um, this reward-based environment that is where rewards are based on um, how quickly we can do something, how, you know, um, how many things we get done. Again, it's about doing and not being is very much the opposite of what I'm talking about today. Um, and, and opposite to mindful eating, to taking the time to notice what our food is, to taking the time to, to really engage all of our senses, and then taking the time to properly chew so that we can start the digestive process and get our body ready and start the release of digestive enzymes, and then slowly mindfully eat. Um, so that is the that is one reason for a lot of people with gut issue. This is this is very very helpful. It's not something that's going to help cure, but it's certainly a necessary step um, in helping to heal. And then the other reason is that um, you know people who are looking to mindfully eat because they're scared, you know, they're concerned that their binge eating has gotten out of control, um, or they can't, you know, they, they can't control themselves because of cravings at times. Um, or they just feel that their portion sizes are too much. Maybe they're not necessarily binging, but they're overeating and they're not necessarily being able to um, detect when they're full. So again, mindful eating and eating that slowly is going to allow our body the time to send a signal from our stomach as our stomach stretches, right? When we're eating um, foods that are rich in fiber, um, our stomach is going to go ahead and stretch and we're going to get the signal back to our brain saying, you know what? I'm full. I'm good. You can stop now. And so again, it's something that'll help prevent overeating as well. And studies have been done on this and mindful eating is actually, can be actually very helpful in terms of um, helping cultivate um, healthier eating habits as well. Mindfulness eating is now almost trendy in a way, um, yeah. which I like uh, because it it is anti dieting. It's it's a, all it's wonderful that we're taking um, sort of this uh, the industry of dieting and translating mm -hmm. or or transforming it into uh, a mindfulness practice and also a self love practice. One hundred percent. Yes, exactly. It's not about restriction. It's not about um, deprivation, but it's really about being in tune with our bodies. And, you know, oftentimes, um, 
you know, when my kids will say, you know, mommy, can I have more? Can I? And I'll ask, you know, how does your body feel? What do you think? And it's funny, actually, my daughter caught me. It was a few weeks ago, I believe she caught me eating very fast. I was like clearly getting on to my, you know, thinking about, okay, what do I have to do next? And kind of, you know, and just kind of trying to, she's like, mom, and you know, the power of, you know, the, the beginner's mind, right? And well, we can talk about beginner's mind because that's really important in cultivating a healthy uh, mindfulness practice. But the beginner's mind of a seven and a half year old saying, mommy, why are you eating so fast? And she really caught me and I thought, my gosh, Olivia, I am, you're, you're a hundred percent right. I don't know. I guess I was, you know, really kind of thinking about the things that I have to do and, and, and sort of subconsciously rushing myself. Um, and so, uh, again, just monitor, I mean, we all, we all do it. Um, uh, but again, as we are more kind of start to really cultivate the single task, um, type of approach will gain more awareness. And then we don't have to have other people telling us, hey, you're doing, but, but when they do, that's wonderful. How, how great, you know, to welcome that feedback um, and then to, to modify as a result. Um, but I think that's, that's very, you know, very important to cultivate that awareness. Um, There's a, so I brought out this thing from my desk. I, I wrote a little while ago. I wrote um, intuitive eating on it. There's a book about it. It's like a movement now, I guess, which is what I was uh, more referring to. And I wrote um, these 10 steps. I, I have it here. Oh, wonderful. Like reminder. And what I, I just glanced at them quickly. And I realized that each one of these steps is related to mindfulness. Absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the first one. What are the steps? Yeah, share them. Yeah, so the first one is reject diet mentality. There's um, so never think that there's dieting in your future, not like today, tomorrow. It's just it's not non-existent, and that's a practice of mindfulness because it's being aware of how you normally think. So I know that I've definitely, and many of us have thought, um, oh, I'll I'm going to diet tomorrow, or I'm going to be better at this tomorrow, or next week, or whenever. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to go on this diet, this way of living. Right. But if you are mindful and, and listening to that voice, because sometimes that voice is very quiet. Yes. Quiet. Uh, and so it's a, it's the perfect first step to shock you. Be like, no, I know where your mind's going. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> come back. Come back. Mm-hmm. There's none of that in your future. Um, number two is honor your hunger. So ask what level of full you are. Definitely um, about kind of scanning your body and your mind and what is it telling you here like mm-hmm. ask yourself honestly uh, all of these steps what I notice uh, for sure is that it's it's all about being honest with yourself mm-hmm. really, really honest. Yeah. and that's another way you could um, describe mindfulness as being very honest with your body and your mind um, yeah. number three is make peace with food um, so don't use words like shouldn't and can't that's mindfulness in your speech mm-hmm. and as well as your thoughts. Like I and, can't and judgment. Right. Exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, challenge the food police disregard good or bad. There are no rules. Mm-hmm. Like that. Um, even, even me as a, a nutritionist in my past, I would say to people, don't label a food as good or bad. Yeah. I definitely do it though. <laughs> I'd be like, Oh, I actually, I did it to you before this call. 
Yeah, I said I was having fog and I... Um, oh, yes, that's right. Yes. I that's yes. really funny. I said, oh, I, I'm pretty sure I know why I have really bad fog and pain today. It's because it was the Jewish holidays and we eat a lot of food during those holidays. And I was not paying attention to what I was eating. I was enjoying it. That's the good part about it. But my body is uh, yelling at me for it. And I said that I was eating bad food. Food, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So definite judgment. Even if it's the, the truth, it was still a judgment call. I'm being aware of that judgment. Um, mm -hmm is really important. Uh, feel your fullness. Similar to the other, but stop while eating and reflect on taste. So um, yeah, taste on, and fullness and, and how your, like your senses physically feeling there. Uh, discover the satisfaction factor. Find pleasure in the eating experience. Yes, that's so important. Uh, and the reason, <laughs> very appealing to you. The reason, yeah. And the other thing, again, that we haven't, um, uh, you know, talked about yet, but but also within the scope of that mindfulness, the power of human connection, right? And 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 in mindful again, and speaking about mindful eating, uh, you know, one of the things that um, we should recognize as well is that you know it's it's now uh, less common for families to sit down and have meals together, and that's really really important. Again, not in just cultivating mindful eating. But also in cultivating connection and meaning, and um, and and having support system. And um, I actually a couple of years ago had the pleasure of interviewing this um, physician from a small town of Arzana in Sardinia. And um, Arzana is, is special because it's one of the five blue zones in the world. And blue zones are these places uh, where there's a, the highest density of centenarians, so people who live above a hundred. Uh, compared to other parts of the world. And so I had the pleasure of interviewing this physician and we talked about, you know, what is it that makes, because the, in the different blue zones, people eat very different diets. And in, in the, in the uh, people that, that this physician interviewed, as well as in uh, a woman that I had the pleasure of interviewing was 99 and just this amazing woman um, in the little town of Arzana. Uh, what I found was that people had very different eating habits. You know, some were vegetarian, some drank wine, others didn't, some ate lard, others didn't. I mean, there was a huge variation in terms of specifically what they ate. Um, but the one thing that was in common, the zero kilometer diet, you know, eat things in season where in, in the region where you're from, uh, and also eat, like, eat with your family, eat with your loved ones, enjoy the act of eating because they don't, they don't think of the way they think of food is just so, so different. And I think that that kind of really goes to the point of, of these 10, um, uh, 10 kind of rules of, of intuitive eating or, or, or what you would call it, because it's not necessarily about saying this is good, this is bad, but it's about, okay, well, I may indulge in this or, or whatnot, but, but then really the point is I'm here to nourish myself and do so together with my family while we're enjoying each other's company uh, and sharing this beautiful experience of food. Food can absolutely be a meditative experience, mm -hmm. in my opinion. I, and while I don't do it all the time either, uh, by any means, if I had a seven-year-old daughter, she'd probably call me out too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, when I'm eating something that one or I would typically label as bad food, something that's very obviously not going to nourish my body. For me, my biggest weakness is uh, really good pasta with a cream sauce. 
mm-hmm. especially if there's truffle oil in it. That I mean, that just mm-hmm. I don't know if it's fiber or what, but I swear I get like a little high from that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I will put everything down like and away, like my phone's away, and I will just indulge in every bite. I also forbid it at the table anywhere for people to talk about food being unhealthy or them feeling bad or having judgment while they're eating it. They shouldn't do it after yeah. anything, but yeah. while, well, then you're just totally wasting the experience. Completely. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That I never understood. I was like, eat your pizza, decide what you want to do about that later. If you don't want to eat that again, anytime soon, but don't talk negatively or judge yourself or the situation while you're enjoying it. And I think that's an important part of mindful eating too. Maybe it's not going to be what's best for your body, but if you have that awareness, it's going to impact that moment and and thereafter. Definitely. Definitely. Yes. And even, you know, Ayurveda talks about um, cooking mindfully and, you know, putting your best energy and thoughts into food or even prayers into food and, and good emotions that are then going to, you know, there, there's a, a belief um, that, that the energy that you bring in when you're preparing food is going to be the energy that then feeds the individuals that are eating that food. And I think that's just such a beautiful kind of way of, of thinking about it. Um, and, and there's definitely something to be said about the energy with which we're consuming the food as well. Yeah, I mean, we, we know that the process in which we consume stress ultimately determines if that stress is going to be perceived by our body as a positive versus a negative and then lead to premature death. There's actually a fascinating TED Talk also on my resources page um, by this woman who talks about studies that have been done where individuals who think, oh, stress is bad, stress is bad, and I'm constantly under stress, they actually live shorter lives than individuals that are like, I have stress, bring it on. I'm going to get like even better. And even, you know, and, and those individuals don't. So the same thing goes with, with food in a way, not that we should all be eating processed and junk food all the time, but, but to have that positive mindset of, you know what, it's okay to indulge. It's okay to have, it's good to have a variety of different foods and not to feel. And then when we make a choice to have a little indulgence, that's okay. Don't feel bad about it. Bring good energy into it. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. That's, that's interesting. Totally makes sense. Um, in that case, I think I'm doing relatively well. Uh, I love when my doctors ask me how I'm doing. Um, mm-hmm. They say, are you stressed? And I'm like, well, yeah, but I'm nothing's abnormal and I'm happy. Yeah. And generally, I am happy and stressed, but I uh, hopefully that's having, that's definitely having a better impact than when I am not. I did have a flare up once from being acutely stressed from something that was very positive like it was good news that mm-hmm. shocked me that I had palpitations and then had to flare up but that's not typical right. <laughs> yeah I think it was because I had palpitations like my body just reacted so yeah. strongly to it yeah I did but uh, but the fact that it was surprising to me that I got a flare is telling right mm-hmm. you usually have flares um or if we're aware of why we have flares we'll uh, associate it with a negative stimulus of something stressful, uh, but um, and 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 perhaps it's for that reason because if it's not a negative thing but it's still stressful, you have that give it that positive energy. I think yes. my experience is just a lot, but that hasn't happened to me any other time. Yeah, yeah. Lots of other positive stressors like 
making events for Wellacopia or jet or uh, doing podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good example. Um, so I did want to to ask something that I thought of a, a little earlier. So when in talking about eating and um, uh, loving kindness and walking, talking, and body scans, which by the way, I have personal experiences with all of those I could talk about. Um, I thought of something that I have not done, mm-hmm. which I think could be useful uh, to a lot of people listening, which is a mindfulness practice specifically before and or after seeing a doctor. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never done that, but it sounds like the right thing, a, a really positive thing to do. I, yeah, I, I hear you. Um, I think that, uh, that is such an interesting, um, question and absolutely has a role because a lot of us, when we go, I mean, even, even I, at times when I go to see a doctor, there's that sense of, you know, even though like, I, like, I mean, I, I spend so much time in hospitals and feel at home and absolutely, you know, this is my territory. Um, there's definitely that sense of, you just feel a little bit more kind of on edge and you feel that sympathetic drive and um and I think it can be helpful. So what I've done in the past when um let's say I've had to have a medical procedure or something that was giving me a little bit of added stress that I that I wanted to work on, one very simple thing one could do is actually a breathing exercise. Uh and then that could be followed by a mindfulness practice. Uh, so one of the breathing exercises that I absolutely love, uh, that I use myself all the time, it's helped many of my patients who have a history of panic attacks. It's helped them reduce the amount of medications, benzodiazepines that they use for the panic attacks. Um, and and overall, it helps in, um, in even uh, just kind of regulating our day-to-day levels of stress. Uh, so this exercise was taught by Dr. Andrew Weil at... Um, uh, at a seminar that I went to, and um, uh, and I just found that it's it's so powerful uh, that I'd love to share it with you today. So it's the four seven eight breath, and there is actually a a great video that we can link to as well uh, for everybody to see. Um, but essentially, what we're going to do, and we can do a, a demo of a couple of breaths, and then uh, individuals can do it while they're listening to us. Um, so what we'll do is we'll inhale for four. We'll hold our breath for seven, and then we'll exhale for eight. And what we'll do is we'll inhale through the nose, and then, as I said, hold for seven. And then as we exhale, we'll just kind of make a swooshing sound while our tongue is just um, touching our front upper teeth, just between the ridge of that, um, the tissue and the front upper teeth. Uh, and, And we'll do the swoosh. Normally, I recommend four breath cycles twice a day. And then you could also do four breath cycles in a particularly stressful situation. So let's say you're waiting at the doctor's office um, or or somewhere else where you're just starting to feel that maybe those palpitations are coming on or, or stress is being provoked. So what we can do is um, I can do one and then we could do another one together if you'd like. And then for those individuals that are watching the video, I'm actually just going to show with my fingers as well what I'm doing in terms of the counting. But for everybody else, we can count, um, you know, you can count inside your head for four uh, and then seven while you're holding and then eight as you're uh, exhaling. Okay, so we'll start on the count of three. One, two, three. 
we'll do one more. Normally we would do four, but uh, it generally, how do you feel? <laughs> I love taking deep breaths. Yeah. I've found, oh, here's my other thing on my table. So one was intuitive eating. What's the other one? Breath. Breathing. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yep. Um, I find it to be incredibly helpful, but I've never done that breath work. And I am definitely going to try that on the, try on um, doing this four cycles twice a day, right? Yes, four cycles twice a day. And the beauty in taking a long exhale is actually our heart rate decelerates uh, as we're exhaling. So, and then it accelerates as we're inhaling. So with this, we're actually also controlling our heart rate. Uh, and if we were to do other types of breathing exercises through biofeedback, we also would be controlling our heart rate variability, which is again, another very powerful tool uh, to control how we respond to stress, to help with anxiety, depression, um, and even to help with people who have high blood pressure um, among, again, another a, a whole number of, of chronic conditions. But again, there are really, breathing is, a, is an extremely powerful, underutilized tool, right? Because most of the time, again, we don't need to be aware of our breath, so we're not. Yeah, and we breathe so shallowly. Shall yeah. Fellow, we, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we do. I mean, it's it's true. We, um, and again, that sends signals to our heart, and it sends, um, you know, it, it sends a certain, um, it causes our heart rate variability to not necessarily be in the most um, optimal state. And so, again, by doing these other breathing exercises that are part of the heart rate variability biofeedback, we can also control our heart rate variability, which then in turn, um, it's related to our nervous system and it's related to, again, how we perceive um, stressful situations and then just in general, how we, how we deal with um, stress, anxiety, depression, insomnia, and physiological processes such as high blood pressure. I, uh, I think it was when I, I was in Israel a de almost a decade ago, um, living there, and I got really bad food poisoning, unfortunately. Food poisoning, that has affected me for years, really, afterwards. Yeah. Um, and I was in hospital because I became clinically uh, dehydrated, uh, but, and then I was just having terrible cramps. And one of the nurses said to me, take deep breaths. And I remember looking at her like, what do you mean, take deep breaths? You're telling me... <laughs> breath like that's going to do anything right now it feels like my insides are dying and um and but I did and I took really mm. now I didn't do exactly the like the counts that you said but I took really deep breaths and then exhaled for a long time afterwards and it absolutely took away the edge mm -hmm. I couldn't believe it so now I've always done that when my pain is really bad like something very like acutely painful I take really deep long breaths yeah, also yeah. Calms me at the same time. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So that alone, I have seen work. Yeah, it's uh, truly been helpful. Um, I realize that I, we have to wrap up in a sec, but there is so much more I still want to talk about. I hate how this happens. Um, now, something I would like to touch on is in applying this and and others applying this to their lives. 
Uh, one thing that I think, or a couple things that tend to put people off are, uh, other than being able to just fit it in because they've never done, mm -hmm. is the trial and error, because so many of us do trial and error with all types of treatments, and this definitely requires some trial and error. Mm -hmm. Trial and error meaning it's gonna be different for every person. Like I said about my chair and the noise and the when, like there's, there's so many variations. So one trial and error and then also consistency. Yes, it's very important. And in, and in really kind of helping to uh, maintain that consistency, it's really important that number one, you set realistic goals. So it may be that a lot of studies were done on 20 minutes of meditation twice a day, or some studies were done on these meditation retreats. And of course, that's not realistic for most people. So what you can do is instead of setting a goal that, you know, okay, 95%, there's a chance that I'm not going to maintain this beyond a week. Uh, let's set a goal that's realistic for you. Uh, and then what I would say is put it in your phone, put it in your calendar, uh, set an alert. Because again, without scheduling time for it, it's not going to happen. Again, a habit um, is something that's difficult to form. And unless it's something that's really going to kind of, you know, make uh, a, a major, be a major factor, um, uh, you know, for you to, or, or make a major difference after just one meditation, uh, you're not going to schedule to do it. And, and really, we only see results when it's consistently practiced. So I would really encourage everybody who's thinking about trying this to schedule time that's realistic for you. Uh, and whether that's five minutes or 10 or 20, it, it's okay. You can build to it. You can build to it later. So if it's five just now, that's better than doing 20 minutes once every two weeks. So being realistic with you, being honest with yourself and being realistic with that. And then the other piece is attaching it to something that you already do. So whether this is attaching it to sleep and doing it first thing in the morning, perfect. Uh, after brushing your teeth in the morning, great. Before going to bed, again, the only thing that I would caution people here is if you're really exhausted before you go to bed, chances are you'll, you'll fall asleep very quickly. And then again, and that's totally fine, but then you may not derive the benefits of just the meditation itself. Um, on the other hand, however, it can help people go to sleep. It can, it can help people be you know, part of their sleep hygiene if it's a mantra meditation or if it's a guided meditation to some soothing music. And again, then by all means, use it in that way if that works for you. Um, but realistic goals, attaching it to a habit, creating that routine, um, being mindful of being in a quiet space where you're not going to be interrupted. Um, and then other things that are really important, don't beat yourself up if you don't miss it. Again, just like with anything else, it's easy um, for us to feel shame or guilt if we eat a food that is bad or if we do something that we know we shouldn't have uh, or don't do something that we should have. So don't beat yourself up about it, right? Because that defeats the purpose of being mindful and meditating, right? And then also just think about how this infiltrates your day-to-day -day because that's really the key, right? What we practice gets stronger. So if we practice anger or feeling that we're a victim or feeling that the world is against us or feeling that we're not enough, what we practice gets stronger. But by the same token, if we practice being mindful, being aware, questioning with curiosity, not with judgment, but questioning with curiosity, these, that's interesting that these feelings are coming up for me. That's interesting that these thoughts are coming up. I wonder what that means. 
And whether it's a therapist or a health coach or a trusted friend that you discuss that with, questioning with curiosity here is key. Um, and, and really being, you know, accepting rather than rejecting. And so this we can apply to all parts of our lives, right? Being accepting of other people, not having a certain agenda or expectation of others and then say, well, you disappointed me, you failed, you know, and, and of course, um, you know, I think it's important to take this in the context of mindfulness. Of course, it doesn't mean that, oh, we'll just go with the flow and whatever happens, happens. But, but really in the context of mindfulness, being aware of what it is that is going on around us and how we're, how we're affected by it. Um, and so when a, when a thought or emotion comes up, rather than getting into the, the pattern that you normally get into, which can usually be fear-based or worry-based or anger-based, which ultimately is a, a manifestation of fear, um, rather than going into those, think about, oh, I wonder, I wonder why I feel this way. Let me, let me reflect on that or discuss it with someone. Because that's really be the key, going to be the key of how you adopt these practices into real life, rather than just say, "Oh, wow!" For those ten minutes, I was really mindful, and then everything, you know, kind of started crushing down on me, right? Because that's not that's not going to be mindfulness. I was trying to think of um, what are the what's sort of the mantra, mm -hmm. uh, the mantras behind mindfulness. Like, what are the things to keep in mind? And let me know if I'm missing one. Um, there's, uh, I don't know if you want to say pushing away judgment or, or dismissing judgment, uh, consistency, curiosity, uh, which is part of awareness, and attention. Attention. Oh, I guess that's awareness too. But oh, yeah. Attention, yeah. Uh, definitely. Rather than pushing it away, just being curious about it, you know, because again, we don't want to reject because judgment is part of us, right? And so if we reject it, then we're rejecting something that's that's part of how we're built, right? So embracing, but but questioning it, not taking it at face value, right? And getting curious about it. Got it. Yeah. So curiosity is really a positive way to say no judgment. Right, but right, exactly. And then, and then also there's kind of the whole, and this is kind of a whole other area, but Pema Children talks a lot about attachment and, you know, really kind of oftentimes, you know, we're so attached to certain outcomes and we're so, and it's important to have drive and goals and plans a hundred percent, but oftentimes we're so attached to certain outcomes or to certain ways of being or things of being a certain way. I would just say starting to get curious about those attachments as well. Yeah, because that can be a great source of suffering if not everything goes exactly according to plan. And for the most part in life, things don't go exactly according to plan. So so having a plan, having goals, having the drive, having the, the desires, but then but then thinking about that relationship with attachment and Pema Chodron is a great resource for for this. Good, thank you. I'm glad that you're providing so many resources and we'll, we'll definitely have those in the show notes, but you're a great resource yourself. And I really want to thank you for coming on and, and diving deeper into what mindfulness actually uh, can look like for individuals and mm -hmm. even those who have never even attempted to uh, practice mindfulness or meditation in their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and I like, I'd like to put out there that while consistency is absolutely key in order to get the long-term benefits, just start, as you said, it's yeah. just start something. I'm, this is making me remember how I can be consistent 
uh, with it because I'm I'm not right now. I will fully admit that. Uh, but I've seen the benefits anytime I do this. Even even we were just talking about when I was in pain and breathing deeply. There, it this really can have such an enormous impact in your lives. Cancer patients do it and have seen um, massive influence on actual like actual cancer growth. I won't go into that now, but there is a lot of information on that as well. Um, symptoms of cancer pain and other it's really remarkable perception of the mind yeah and perception at the at the very least is is huge for mindfulness um so i guess my personal parting words of wisdom are that this is invisible not broken Uh, we share stories um, and experiences of living with an invisible illnesses or even the invisible experiences of visible illnesses so I want to encourage everyone to consider a treatment that is invisible. Just because a treatment is not in medication form or isn't like a physical modality does not mean it's any less effective. In fact, I would argue to say that it's where you need to start with any healing journey. I completely agree. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening. And Dr. Boyana, thank you again for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Invisible Not Broken. If you haven't already, please take the next 30 seconds to do these three things. Hit that subscribe button, tap the pretty stars to give us a rating, and share with one spoonie friend. If you're interested, we have made a newsletter for chronic illness inspiration on a weekly basis. Sign up for the Wellspo, that's hashtag Wellspo for wellness inspiration, weekly newsletter that we'll be sending out each Friday afternoon. It will include recent top tier research, spoony humor memes, and stories from the community, plus any relevant announcements. You can sign up for the newsletter on wellacopia.com if you scroll to the bottom of our homepage or on blog.wellacopia.com slash newsletter. Both links will be in the show notes. Lastly, Monica and I would like to do an Ask Us Anything episode to wrap up the new year. If you want to submit a question or even come on the show to ask your question in real time, send us an email, invisiblenotbroken at gmail.com. Until next time, guys, be kind, be gentle, be badass.